Hello everyone and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we try to answer once and for all, what is the best comic book adaptation? Yes, be it movie or TV show, we'll watch it and rank it until we have our definitive number one. And who's we? Well, I'm your host Andrew, and as per usual, I'm joined by my co-host Mick. Uh, no, 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 no. Badger. Don't use real names. Oh, I'm oh, we need, we need elaborate code names now. Yeah. In which case, I'll be Mr. Mistopheles. No, wait, that's that's cats. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? That's a full that's a <laughs> elaborate like, code names and secretive meetings. <laughs> oh my god, is, is Cats a spy thriller? Have I finally cracked it? <laughs> is that what that film was about? T- Taylor Swift's <laughs> spy classic. <laughs> hey, Judy Dench is M. Uh, it, it finally all comes together. There you go. Anyway, no, sadly I've not yet figured out how the, how we can do cats on a comic book adaptation show yet. No. I wouldn't rush to, to figure that out if I were you. That's fair enough. Anyway, Mick. I've got no intention of watching cats, ever. It's it's an experience, Mick. I'm Much sure like I'm sure 2021 is going to be. Well, yeah, let's hope so. I, I I had a taste of 2020. I didn't want it. It's sour and bitter. I don't, Not a good vintage. That's why we're hoping this is the new and improved flavour. Also, I realise, as I said, that you're talking in terms of wine and I'm thinking like Coca-Cola. <laughs> that, that about sums us up, doesn't it? <laughs> Anyway, enough of that nonsense, because now it's time for this intro to oscillate wildly between gritty spy thriller and neon-soaked action as we behold Atomic Blonde. Yes, this is the 2017 film, directed by David Leach, written by Kurt Johnston, and based on the graphic novel The Coldest City by Anthony Johnston and Sam Hart. And Mick, in an exciting change of pace for the new year, are you familiar with The Coldest City? I am. I've read both graphic novels. Oh, that's right. They, they, I forgot they did another one. Yeah. Um, Coldest Winter, I think it's called. And uh, I, I sort of stuck with it. it. It's got a kind of scratch artwork that I don't usually like. But it was more the fact that it was plot driven. I'll be honest, I read the first one after I watched the film, but then I watched the second one. I read the second one, which means I'm perfectly placed for the sequel. Exactly when and if it ever comes out, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? I'll tell you what, uh, if they were shooting it during 2020, it'll have been a difficult one to shoot socially distanced. I'm not sure I've read the cold. I know I've definitely read the Coldest City, and I read that like years and years ago when it first came out. Mm. But uh, not sure. I can't remember if 
I've read the coldest window, or if I've maybe just read the coldest city more than once. <laughs> I'll I'll be honest, but I struggled with the second one. Uh, it it was very much green treading old ground. I felt um, just having a look now. See, I'm just confirming what the sequel was called. It obviously left an impression on me. Yeah. I'm not too surprised because the, the original book definitely it's not very open to following up on, is it? It's kind of like a, a no. self-contained story. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was the coldest winter. It was. Uh, it was published in 2016 in the before times. Yeah, actually, because that's interesting. Because I know work on. Um, Atomic Blonde, I think that started in 2015. So I wonder if it was like one of those, hey Anthony, can you drum up another one of these so that we can maybe whip up a bit of interest? Yeah, because I know, I know um, The Coldest City uh, had a, one of those rebranding exercises where it was now a major motion picture, Atomic Blonde. Yeah, I think now it's like Atomic Blonde colon The Coldest City. Yeah. Now yeah, a major yeah. mo- That's it. Now a major motion picture in cinemas now. Starling Shelley's yeah. on. Oh no, we've run out of space for the actual story. Oh well just go watch the film. <laughs> so yeah, so um it's for me, it's very different reading a spy thriller in comic book form. Cause Unlike, unlike the action in, say, something like a, a Marvel movie, which is a massive set-piece battle, which is easy to spread over three or four pages um, in big, bold colour. When you're telling a spy thriller in black and white, grayscale drawing, um, and they're not those kind of set-pieces, because the last thing you want to do is draw attention to yourself by having a pitched battle on the streets of Berlin. I think it's difficult for capturing those kind of fight sequences effectively in a comic where you're having to keep them low-key, but still exciting. So I I think I was a little bit disappointed with the comic having watched the film first. Yeah, I think definitely if you've done it that way around, because just the comic itself is very different to the film in terms of not being like, a huge action thing. Yeah, it's more uh, like a seventies political thriller. Lots of talking and double crossing and stabbings in the back. Yeah, and it, it's very stark, and the, the the artwork is very stark and minimalist, and not at all brightly coloured and noisy like the film. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'll probably get more into this into discussion, but it is weird that the comic and the film are both well. In a way, heavily stylized, but in completely different ways. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it's one of those things where it was probably a good idea that they um, they called it Atomic Blonde as a movie, because if I'd have um, read The Coldest City and then heard that there was a film coming out called The Coldest City, I'd have gone, yeah, <laughs> simply because 
the way you'd imagine a film to be made of the coldest city uh, wouldn't be my kind of film. It would be one of those sort of third man, Harry Lime, all done in the little character dialogues in back streets of Berlin and yeah, exactly. stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that is the kind of film that the comic is very, like, clearly heavily inspired by. Yeah. Um, so, in a way, I'm kind of glad I did it this way around. Oh, okay. Well, I think we could probably talk about more things like that in a bit. Because yeah. I'll, uh, I'll do the synopsis first, shall I? Yes. Synopsize it. So, as always, this uh, synopsis will contain spoilers. Well, and this and the discussion afterwards. But, the film has been out for three years and has been on pretty much every major streaming service Terrestrial channel, and I think probably uh, just giving away in a box of Rice Krispies. Pretty much. Anyway, the, the film starts in November 1989. The very English MI6 agent from England, Lorraine Broughton, who's played by Charlize Theron, is debriefed by her superiors, C. James Faulkner, Eric Gray, Toby Jones, and CIA agent Eric Kurtzfield, played by John Goodman. Lorraine recounts, in an accent that's probably from somewhere in Britain, her, yes. her recent disastrous mission to Berlin. So she'd been sent to investigate the assassination of fellow agent James Gascoigne, Sam Hargrave, and Gascoigne was in possession of a list of all known British and Soviet agents in Berlin, a list that was taken by his assassin, the Russian agent Yuri Bakhtin, played by Johannes Johannesson. Did I include him just so I could say that name? Yes, definitely. Yes. Included on this list is the identity of Satchel, a mole for the Russians inside MI6. Uh, rather than turning the list over to his superiors, though, Bakhtin has decided to try and sell it on the black market. So, to find the list and hunt down Satchel, Lorraine is forced to team up with David Percival. James McAvoy, the head of MI6's Berlin station, who has gone native. However, Lorraine soon finds that Percival knows much more than he's letting on, and may even be the very double agent she's looking for. This suspicion is furthered when Lorraine enters into a relationship with French agent Delphine LaSalle, Sophia Butella, or however those names are supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> has also been keeping tabs on Percival. Uh, with leads on the list drying up, Lorraine switches tack. She instead goes after Spyglass, Eddie Marzen, the Stasi officer who gave Gascoigne the list, and has memorised the whole thing. Lorraine and Percival set up a plan to help Spyglass defect from east to west Berlin, but this plan is ambushed by the Soviets, setting off a series of violent events in which we find out just exactly which side each character is on. Or do we? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, Mick, what did you think of this film? I loved it. I went, I went to the cinema not really knowing, as I said, I didn't realise it was based on a graphic novel. And I just went because, uh, well, for two reasons. One, I saw the poster with Charlize Theron looking like 80s era Debbie Harry. 
And two, um, I had an unlimited card. So I took a punt and I went to see it. And I thought it was so fantastically stylized. It was all these cries that there have been over the years for a female James Bond. You've already had it, and it was this. But a sort of funkier version. With a better soundtrack than most Bond movies. Yeah, see, see, this might be interesting then, because I don't love it. Oh, controversial. Like, for me, it's kind of the opposite of something like Tank Girl or Batman Returns, where those films, Ooh. like, they're very messy, but we kind of, we like them anyway. Was this one, right. I find, it's a very well-made film, and like, like you say, it does look absolutely fantastic. But I, I just find I kind of don't care about a lot of it. Um, well, I, th- I think, I think by the end of it, there are very few likable characters. That's certainly true. Uh, probably Eddie Marson's Spyglass is the only sort of real sympathetic character by the end. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you sort of, just due to the sort of, traditions of cinema, you sort of root for Charlize Theron's character uh, for the vast majority of it, even though she's brutally violent and uh, clearly playing by her own rules. Um, James McAvoy seems, he does seem to oscillate a bit between trying to be a lovable rogue and just being an ass. Yeah, so so I think they did that to the, like it's obviously supposed to be you kind of meant to be kept guessing as to what side David McAvoy is on. Like, is he actually a, a lot of British agent? Is he working for the Russians? Is he just doing his own thing? But I think yeah, I think it just doesn't quite land, and it just comes across as being a, a bit random. Yeah. There are a few plot turns that sort of come out of left field, and I think sometimes there are a few too many things thrown in to just confuse you. Um, there's all the mention of Comrade Satchel and being close to Satchel. That that all sort of is thrown in there to keep you guessing and confusing, and it's a long time coming the payoff for it, but I'm not sure the payoff's really worth it. Yeah, especially because, and this I will say, this is the very big spoiler for the film. It's that Charlize Theron, she is Satchel. And yeah. that's like, that's how the comic ends, but then the film. Yeah. It's, but no, it's also that she's a triple agent working for the Americans. And I think yeah. that does have the impact of making the satchel bit seem not that important. Yeah. It also begs the question, why was John Goodman in the debriefing? Yeah. At the beginning. Yeah. When he's quite obviously working with her. 
yes, you would think that he just wouldn't be there. Like, because he doesn't need to be there. Because if she's working for him, then she can just tell him the, the debrief later. Yeah. It's, I think that is just one of those things where they've gone, we need a way to introduce John Goodman in this film. Yeah. Also, there's a bit in Berlin where she meets up with him. And surely, by that point, you know, well, okay, she's she's working with John Goodman then because she doesn't mention that in the debrief. But then it's yeah. still, like, supposed to be a surprise twist at the end. Yeah. And that, that is the other thing, because um, some of the debrief appears... The, the debrief itself, for the for a large part of the film, appears to be um, her recounting the events in Berlin, so that the actual action part of the film seems to be almost a flashback. Yeah, and I, I do like kind of some of the things it does. Well, like it says very early that Lorraine isn't telling the entire truth, which is like James Gascoigne. Oh yeah, I, I knew him well enough to say hello to. Cut to them yeah. in bed together. I think yeah. that that is a cool way of establishing. Oh, the rain is clearly holding some things back, but initially you think it's just this. Oh, because she doesn't want to reveal that she was investigating like her boyfriend's death. Yeah. Um. But I think, I mean. The truth is, if you if you went and did an in-depth analysis on pretty much any Bond movie, you'd come up with the same sort of criticisms, I think. That the plot doesn't make really any sense. You know, think about how many Bond villains are out to destroy the world. What's the point? What's the point of destroying the world? Yeah, I guess to be fair then, I think really what my problem is is it's kind of what I was talking about in the intro. Is that I, I do feel sometimes like there's two versions of this film where one is trying to be like quite a straight-laced adaptation of The Coldest City and the other yeah. one is being this like very stylish 80s James Bond movie. Yeah. And I think because it, it seems like it's trying to compromise between the two. And really what it seems to me like and I've got absolutely no proof for this is that it started off being just like a quite straight laced oh we'll do a straight adaptation of the Coldest City maybe throw in a few like action scenes just to spice it up a bit and then later on in production they decided actually no things like John Wick and Deadpool they're quite popular now and they're very stylish so we've got to be more stylish now quickly spray paint everything Nine and nine new fluff balloons. There we re go. Re re restage everything with neon lights. Yeah, because that's the th like sometimes you'll get a lot of scenes just in Berlin, where it's very grey, very serious, and then Charlize yeah. Theron goes back to her ridiculous like neon soaked Blade Runner bedroom. <laughs> you see, I just imagine that that's like how Charlize Theron lives. Yes, I'm sure it is in I the think, year 2020. I, I think that was her trailer on set. 
<laughs> I just think it was going to be a bit difficult and said, I'm not coming out of this trailer. So fine, we'll just film the scenes in there. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute, how is this so uh, big? It was only like seven feet by 12 feet we gave you, Charlize. How is this a whole apartment? <laughs> but uh, I think the, the way it does work for me it's kind of in its, its building of the retro 1989 Cold War Berlin. Um, everything down to, in East Berlin, there's a retrospective exhibition of the films of, is it Tarkovsky? In the big cinema. Yeah. So yeah, they they set up a nice um, recreating the world of nineteen eighty nine Berlin because let's face it, you know the wall's not there anymore. Um, there's a retrospective of the work of the uh, Russian film director Tarkovsky. Um, there's the soundtrack, which is so eighties it almost hurts. It does again. I I kind of have issues with the soundtrack because every every single song on that soundtrack is an absolute banger. You're absolutely right. However, yeah. two major problems. First of all, it does get a bit. Yes, I get it. Film you're set in the eighties, so everything is like new wave synth pop. And <laughs> second, and possibly even more. I've never heard London Calling by the Clash referred to as synth pop before, but carry on. Well, second of all, and even more egregious, <laughs> in a film called Atomic Blonde, they don't use <laughs> Atomic by Blonde. Atomic by Blonde. At any point. <laughs> Despite Charlie Theron looking like Debbie Harry in the video for Atomic by Blondie. Oh, but did you know what they do have, Mick? They do have a slowed down, sad version of Nine and Nine's in Luftballon. Indeed. But yeah, no, the, I, I will admit that the songs are great. It's a banging scene. I know, like, you've got like Blue Monday, De Commissar, like London yeah. Calling. Yeah. Bunch of other ones. A, a nice, a nice, a nice little callback. One of the indie darlings of the eighties that I remember from my uh, sixth form days, Till Tuesday, featuring Amy Mann, who's who's peppered pop culture with appearances. She was uh, one of the bands that appeared at the Bronze in uh, Buffy. Oh, good for her! Actually, they've got some Bowie as well, don't they? It's um, Cat People, yeah, isn't it? They're, they're putting out fires with gasoline. Yeah, Cat People. Yeah. And a version of Major Tom by not David Bowie. Yeah, which which again I will have to take another mark off of that one, Atomic Blonde. <laughs> uh, Actually, some Public Enemy, some Depeche Mode. That's yeah, just look. If a band was big in the eighties, they're probably in this film, unless they're blonding. Well, actually, to be fair, a lot of them aren't that. A lot of them aren't 
what you call mainstream. I mean, obviously, David Bowie was mainstream big. Susie and the Banshees, mainstream big. Flock of Seagulls, not so much. Public Enemy, kind of mainstream big, but mainly for the sort of hip-hop crowd. Depeche Mode, yeah. Uh, New Order, yeah, kind of. But Nina, it was basically just 99 Red Balloons. Name another Nina track. I mean, you you know full well that no one in the world can name another Nina track. Not even Nina what? can name another. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't even uh, proudly exclaim that I remember the name of the B-side of 99 Red Balloons because the B-side of my copy of 99 Red Balloons was 99 Luftballon. Actually, yeah. Does it count if we say... 99 red balloons and 9 and 9 Zygluft balloon. Because they're technically different. <laughs> she recorded one of them in English. <laughs> but I, I think I think for me, that's, that's why this film works for me, is that they have gone to the effort of choosing tracks from the 80s that that lend themselves to a sort of cold, stark, industrialist, pre, pre Glasnost, East Berlin. Um, I mean, if you were going to do every band that was big in the eighties, where's the Duran Duran? Where's the yeah? Wang? That's. I mean, I know we've got a George. Band. No, that, that to be. I think that's fair. I mean, being a bit facetiously critical, that they do, they have at least put some thought in like the type of music they use in. Whereas I think a lot of ones... I was surprised there wasn't some craft work, actually. Actually, yeah, no, I take it back. No craft work, Atomic One. What are you doing? <laughs> hmm. Like the most German that... of the German bands, and you're not putting it in. The, the, the most German of the industrially synth-pop bands. <laughs> yes, like I said, German bands. <laughs> Hold on. Isn't... David Hasselhoff, a German band. No, David Hasselhoff. Actually, yeah, I think. I mean, I guess they they mention him in the intro, don't they? They do, yeah. Yeah, they make some reference to him dancing on the wall, don't they? Yeah. Oh, it might be like one of the characters so, says he's he's showing up for a concert soon. Yeah, because I. I I think they, there's a there's an intimation, if not an outright statement, that the the debriefing piece is taking place sometime after the fall of the wall, even if it's just a couple of days after or in the lead up. Yeah, to well, I think so. specifically the debrief is ten days after Lorraine first goes to Berlin, and then I know the wall comes down like around about the same time that mission's wrapping up. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm a, again, it, I, I, I take back. I take it back to the comparison with the James Bond film. If you sit down and scrutinise every James Bond film, you are gonna find plot holes and flaws. But James Bond films aren't there to be criticised and used as, um, you know, 
great cinematic masterpieces to be studied by students of film. James Bond films are there to be sat and watched for an hour and a half to two hours on a bank holiday Monday and just have a good time and be taken along by the adventure. And I think Atomic Bond does that in spades. It's probably, I would say it's more violent than a Bond film. Yeah, and and again, I feel like it's to try to have it both ways. Is that it wants to have these very like zippy action scenes, but then also like these brutal, like absolute visceral, like people just getting the crap kicked out of them, violent roles. Yeah, I, I think I think part of that might be because, as you said earlier, there was the success of John Wick and Deadpool. Um, that people can get away with this in movies now, and people love it. It's great. Uh, do that. Do more of that. Um, I think that the action sequences are well done. I think um, they are a little bit over the top, but again, that's why I watch this kind of movie. It's why I watch a John Wick film. Yeah, it's just I still I don't find it fun in the same way I do a John Wick film. However, that one fight in the stairway is like one of the best fights in cinema. <laughs> and also, as I think we mentioned when we did The Old Guard, Charlize Theron is the number one action actress of the day. Yeah, she is an absolute badass. Like, she can do all her own stunts and just not only do them all, do them all incredibly convincingly as well. Yeah. Because like I watched, I think it's on Netflix. It's called Ava the other day, with Jessica Chastain. Oh, and yeah. God bless her, Jessica Chastain is a good actress. She is not a convincing like fight performer. Dark Phoenix aside, <laughs> yes. Despite some evidence to the contrary, she is a good actress. <laughs> it's just that one damning element on her CV. Although to be fair. She was probably just matching the performances of other people in that. Yeah, I feel like if you've seen some of the other performances in that, you realise very quickly, oh, I don't I don't need to try this one. Yeah, I could just... I'll tell you what, I'll just stay home and phone this one in. But yeah, but no, bless, just watching her, like... I think there's literally a scene in that film where a guy grabs her by the shoulder and you can see him just wait for a good, like, 10, 20 seconds... As she gets ready to punch him. <laughs> well, as Shalice the Ron, she's just like grabbing guns, checking the ammo. There's none there. Better turn it into just an improvised, like, melee weapon. Smack cool. a guy in the face. <laughs> Find another gun. Oh, it's got one bullet in it. Wait until a guy's just like peeking his head around the corner. Then blam. And she does the, the thing that lots of films do, where it looks amazing, I'm sure it's incredibly impractical, but it's still really bad, where she, like, hooks her leg around a guy's neck and just, like, flips him over. Yeah, I mean... And there's also, I think, for a, for a fast-paced action film, there's 
Um, there's an attention to detail that you don't normally get in these kind of films. Like the treatment for all the punishment that the body takes. Getting into an ice bath to stem the swelling and stuff. Now, I appreciate that from um, from a filmmaker's point of view, that's just an excuse to show Charlize Theron getting into a bath to appeal to the demographic. But <laughs> it does also have some basis in fact. You know, any time you get into a situation where there's going to be bruising or inflammation, an ice bath is recommended to stop the swelling. You know, it's a, it is good. I mean, just in general, say when people get injured, like they are actually injured. It's not one of those. Yeah. Oh, what's that? I've been shot. Oh well, it's only in the shoulder, so now I can carry on with the fight scene exactly as normal. Yeah, and and I'll be just fit as a fiddle for tomorrow's fight <laughs> sequence. <laughs> I won't at any point be wincing because someone got me in the ribs two days ago. Yeah, whereas in this, Charlie's like. That sterile fight scene, that is the big climax. And then for the rest of it, like, she's still visibly quite injured. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Also, I should point out that, yes, we were talking about John Wick a lot, and that is deliberate because David Leach was, like, secretly one of the directors of that film. Yeah, and. Uh, what I hadn't realised was that uh, the making of the film was all Theron's idea, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a... It was a bit of a passion project, though. Which, I mean, I can see why, because she gets to be, like, badass Jane Bond and also wear really cool outfits. Yeah. Also, Sophia Boutella is certainly in this film. She is very much in this film. And um, what would you like to elaborate on all the important parts of the plot she plays a role in? Um, 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 oh, does the uh, um, oh. She underlines the fact that spies make very short-term emotional attachments. She illustrates that point very well. Yes, and again, that is crucial to the plot and certainly not just there, much like the ice bath for a certain demographic. (laughs) But no, she... But hey, you could say the same about Pussy Galore in Goldfinger. She is. That was going to be about that. She's such a Bond girl. <laughs> like she is the character who is there to look sexy and then die like partway through the film. Yeah. And the hero will be a bit sad about it, but not too sad because they've got other stuff to do. Yeah. Also, also Charlie's the wrong. You break into that apartment like seconds after Sophia Boutel has been strangled to death. And you could at least try and resuscitate her. <laughs> Short term emotional attachments. Did you not hear that bit? I mean, it's, it's probably less paperwork, isn't it, though? Or at least she can do some of it if she's still alive. <laughs> oh, look. Right, so. Do you want to know the justification for that affair between Butella and Theron? 
in the film? I mean, I think I've already said the justification. It's look at the sexy ladies, but yes, apart from that. Ah, no, no. Uh, it came from the writer, Kurt Johnstad, who suggested it after Theron was thinking about how do you make this different from other spy movies. Leach insisted that the scenes are not there to be provocative, but more about if you are a spy, you will do whatever it takes to get information and how the main character finds her intimacies and friendships in small doses. Hmm. Is this like that one interview with the director of Captain America, the 90s one? No, this is actually a very deep movie. And if I just say... About a man with a rubber ear. It's symbolic, Dan. And how it goes in a world. (laughs) Yes, I'm, I'm sure there was plenty of reasoning that went into it. It's just in execution. Sophia Boutel is there to look sexy and then die. And she does do that, to be fair. She does. Sometimes at the same time, which is a bit awkward and problematic. (laughs) Actually, she could have just been wearing not lingerie in that scene. (laughs) Even if it was just a big shirt. Anyway, I think it's probably about time we banked this on our list. Yeah, this could be an interesting discussion. This could take longer than the actual discussion. It could, this might be a whole separate like series of podcasts where we just bicker over where we put this on the list. <laughs> so, our list does go from 1 to 26, with number 1 being Road to Perdition, 26 being 30 Days of Night. It's So it's definitely 25 or above then? Yeah, it's definitely, I'd, I'd put it above the kind of bottom crop. Because, I mean, 19, we've got Lock and Key Season 1. And that, for me, is still the start of, like, the bad portion of the list. Tommy Bond definitely goes above there. Yeah. And, and, and when we think of the justification of it being an adaptation, it's... It adds to, um, rather than deviates from, the plot of the original. It does, but I would also say it, like, doesn't do as good a job of putting across those themes of it being, like, spy stuff and you don't know who to trust. And it's kind of... In a way, it's all irrelevant anyway, because the fall of the Berlin War and the Cold War is kind of starting to wind down. Yeah. So. So, basically what it is, is it's, 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 it's the espionage agent's quest for retaining relevance in a world that's passing them by. Yes, that, that's that's surprisingly fancy words from you, Mick. I know. I got a dictionary for Christmas. Ah, uh, that explains it. 
and another book that went with the dictionary, but I can't I can't pronounce it properly. But it's got words in it as well. Oh, the dinosaur book. That's the one. Yeah. The saurus. <laughs> okay, so kind of above lock and key, we've got like sixteen is X Men, seventeen is Tank Girl, eighteen is Batman Returns. Ooh. So again, I, I guess this boils down to which one would I most likely watch again? And Batman Returns is on a sticky wicket because I only recently rewatched it because we did a behold on it. Um, Atomic Blonde I can reach from here. Tank Girl I'd have to go searching for. So for me it goes above Tank Girl and Batman Returns. Because I would watch this again. A lot. Probably. Tank Girl's one of those that I'll watch every sort of three or four years. See, again, because Tank Girl, Tank Girl is a film I would definitely like to rewatch. Atomic Blonde, I don't know if I, I don't want to rewatch it necessarily. Like I'd probably watch some of the action scenes on YouTube if I'm if I'm in the mood for it. <laughs> And I, I am, I am looking forward to the sequel, uh, which is now a Netflix exclusive, apparently. Right, but they coming in twenty twenty? Question mark. Yes. So I don't. Uh, it's definitely in that Batman Returns Tank Girl region, isn't it? It it is. Yeah, maybe. We could. It's got a better soundtrack than Batman Returns. How? Okay, about as a compromise, we put it between the two. Like above Batman Returns, just under Tank Girl. So it is our new number 18. Yay! That took less time than I expected. Well, it's the magic of it's still a bit past Christmas, and my blood is mostly cheese, and I'm still too tired to argue that much. Blood is mostly cheese. <laughs> yeah, right, we did well. it. I, I was worried this was going to split the show in half, but we did it. Yeah. And I think with that, that's about it from us. So if you would like to listen to more, you can find all our episodes on the feed or just wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. Uh, if you do want to get in touch, our email is beholdpod at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at beholdpod. And if you are a fan and you do like the show, a big thing that would help us out is maybe leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or even just kind of telling a friend, getting them to listen as well. It is uh, really kind of the best way shows like this can, you know, find their audience and and. I mean, it is the only growth you'll see on this podcast. There'll be no emotional growth from the audience. Oh, oh, no, definitely not. So it's up to you, listeners. 
<laughs> no pressure. No, not much pressure. Do do some work, you layabouts. Yeah, we sit here watching movies and TV shows. In some cases, so that you don't have to. Well, I spend literally some time poring over Stephen Hopeboller notes, and, and this is the thanks we get. <laughs> We're joking. Please don't stop listening to the show. We need you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's everything. So until next time, I've been Andrew. I've been Mick. So long and thanks for listening.